Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenthal. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Artist David Leventhal is a New York-based photographer whose work explores the relationship between photographic imagery and the fantasies, myths, events, and characters that shape the collective American consciousness. Refining a personal photographic style and vision, Leventhal uses toy figures and structures as subject matter for the creation of a surrogate reality. Leventhal has endeavored to create a fictional world that simultaneously calls into question our sense of truth and credibility. Leventhal's photographs of soldiers at war, cowboys, and Barbie dolls reference and re-examine the iconic images and historical events that have shaped post-war American culture. Through his expansive series such as Hitler Moves East, Modern Romance, Wild West, and History, David Leventhal's photographs also reveal the false memories and stereotypes that lurk beneath the surface, challenging viewers to confront the stories we tell about ourselves and our country. Leventhal is a recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship and a Guggenheim Fellowship, and his photographs reside in the permanent collections of New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art, MoMA, and the Whitney, the Center of Pompidou in Paris, the Art Institute of Chicago, LACMA, the National Gallery of Art, and the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C., among others. In 1997, the International Center for Photography in New York presented his first retrospective, titled David Leventhal, Work from 1977 to 1996. The George Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York, organized the most recent retrospective, War, Myth, Desire, in 2018. And in 2019, the Smithsonian American Art Museum organized American Myth and Memory, David Leventhal Photographs, to showcase 74 color photographs. We welcome David Leventhal to Art Laws. Artists Cindy Sherman and Richard Prince saw your first book of photographs, Hitler Moves East, published in 1977, and they thought it was a history book. It was only later that they realized they were photographs of toy soldiers designed in various World War II battle scenes, and that these photographs, which comprised your first museum show at the George Eastman Museum as a very young emerging artist, were all about the illusion. Can you describe and talk about the first body of work that began, I think, as your thesis at Yale School of Art. Yeah, it was interesting. It's like so many things in my career. Happenstance played a huge role in creating this body of work. During my second year at uh, the Yale School of Art, and within the design program, they had started a photo program. And this was, I was among the first class of this subset designated as photography. Again, very fortuitously, we were considered part of the design program and took a number of design courses. Although the four photographers, myself, Jerry Thompson, Melinda Blauvelt, and Bill Crawford, we sat at one big table, which uh, we used to call the children's table. (laughs) Uh, because all the designers had big design tables to work from. And during my second year, we were supposed to come up with some sort of thesis project. And I was wandering through one of the two big department stores in downtown New Haven. And it was around 
probably late October, early November, when they first start putting out their Christmas toys and Christmas themes. And I was walking through the toy department and I saw this box. It was a Mark's metal dollhouse. And I remember the Mark's toys from my childhood. You get a gas station and all these different kinds of things. And I thought to myself, I have this idea. I'm going to get this tin litho dollhouse, put it together and photograph each room. And that would give me a body of work that could be my thesis. I obviously had not thought this through very carefully because lithograph tin is extremely reflective and trying to get a light source, which this was like 1972, 73, into these rooms was very tricky. And I realized pretty quickly that this just was not going to work. So I went back to the toy department and I saw some boxes of toy soldiers and some bags of cowboys and Indians, the kind that you used to see at a grocery store. And I got those and I did the very graduate student type thing. I had the boxes of the toy soldiers gift wrapped and I photographed them wrapped and then partially unwrapped. And then finally the soldiers coming out. And as a child, I played like, I think a lot of children of my generation quite extensively with toy soldiers. Mm-hmm. And the moment I got them out and I started taking some pictures, which were basically just the soldiers on a white seamless, it just resonated with me so much. And my photographs were very, very simple. I think the only background I had was a plastic tree that came in the box with the toy soldiers. It was a box of World War II British infantry and a box of German infantry. And that Christmas, I met my family in Aspen to go skiing. And my youngest brother, Dan, he had come across this toy store in Aspen. And they had in their window display this very graphically enticing box of World War II battle scenes. And I went to that store and picked up several of these, which I packed in my suitcase and took home to California. I believe the winter break at Ivy League schools were at least four weeks, if not slightly more. And I took these boxes, as I said, had a a very intriguing image on the front, much like the ads in comic books where you'd see a battle scene and it would say, send in $1.99 to the, and I love this, the Helen of Toy Company in Troy, <laughs> New York. And you know, you breathlessly await as a child and your box would arrive. And instead of these colorful figures that you'd seen on the page, if it was the Civil War, you got blue figures and gray figures, little plastic figures. 
yet you kept sending in for the Romans and the Knights. I don't know why you would think that anything would be any different, but it was somewhat akin to that. When I opened up the box, there were two boxes of toy soldiers that were quite small. They were HO scales, so they were probably, I think the scale was 178th. So they might have been, you know, three quarters of an inch, if that. And I was setting them up on the floor of my bedroom, which was a linoleum floor, and photographing them. And there were, you know, a couple of plastic pieces like a D-Day bunker or a pontoon bridge that different for each box. And I started photographing them and I just became totally enthralled and subsumed by these pictures. Again, my brother Dan was very helpful because he had a wooden city called Kinder City, uh, which were buildings and blocks that you could make. And I borrowed that to start creating a city. And I found a local hobby store, which also sold these sets. They were from a British company called Airfix. And I started buying a few accessory things like model railroad telephone poles and some other items, including a bridge that had already built. And I spent hours and hours photographing and I was using my two and a quarter Roloflex, which was a single lens camera, but it had a bellows built in. So it, you could photograph small objects quite closely. I'm just uh, curious though, when you were getting all these objects, did you know what you were photographing? Did the time in history that you were trying to reflect come to you later? Or was this something you were knowingly it, doing? It came later. I mean, at the time I was really just doing sort of war scenes, but it was highly influenced by, you know, as a kid, I used to love looking at old life magazines and looking at the photographs from say World War II. And I had always been interested in history from a fairly young age. So I read a fair amount and looked at a lot of pictures but there wasn't any specificity to it at that point. Now, because, as I say, one of the boxes was German and I think the other box was British, I think in one of the sets, like the D-Day set, it might've been German and American troops. And I learned this later on when we were working on the book, the majority of model figures in pretty much all the scales seemed to be of German soldiers. And then you'd find British and American as kind of secondary groups. And I came back to Yale with hundreds and hundreds of prints that I made over the winter break. We had our thesis meeting at sometime in mid to late January. And my classmates would all, all brought in 10 to 12 beautifully printed, in some cases, you know, over matted photographs to show to the faculty. And there was a visiting guest artist, uh, Linda Connor, who came from the San Francisco Art Institute. 
So when it was my turn to go into the room, I went around and I handed each person a large stack of these prints. <laughs> and they were all done on Codalith paper, which was paper I had discovered when I'd spent a summer at the Rochester Institute of Technology. And it created sort of a sepia tone to the mm -hmm. work, but it was also the polar opposite of what was then in fashion, which was the sort of Ansel Adams, Edward Weston uh, zone system, perfect print, where your developing time was very precise. Codalith was much more like pulling a lithograph in some ways, because the developer, which was a two-part developer to which you added some water. And I think the first really well-known photographer to use the Codalith process was Les Krems, who I think was teaching at Buffalo, had been in at Rochester, and you had to pull the print out pretty much in anticipation of how it was going to end up based on how it looked in the developer, because it changed quite quickly. And if you left it in too long, it became very black and dark. So it was, as I say, the antithesis of what was predominantly going on in dark rooms, which I kind of liked because I never found the zone system to be that attractive a concept. Right. Um, I think that was in part because all of my attempts to master it failed. I'm curious though, this series that you started during this process eventually became a book with, and I think all of our listeners know Gary Trudeau from Doonesbury. Mm -hmm. He was also at Yale at the time. That is such an interesting collaboration. I'm just curious, how did you guys come together and what was that process like? Well, you know, it was interesting. Gary, for his thesis project, created a faux biography of a German Luftwaffe pilot using just images and graphic symbols. And this was separate. This was completely yeah, his own. Yeah, it was completely separate. And I had become, again, as I say, fortuitous occurrences are very prevalent in my career description. Um, <laughs> I happened to be up in Cambridge, I probably visiting a friend or something, and I was walking by some of those open book stalls that they used to have. And I saw this book called Hitler Moves East, which was by a German writer named Paul Schmidt. And it was very much written in sort of the same style as Cornelius Ryan and his book, The Longest Day. It was uh, very engaging, almost like a novel, but it was historically accurate and referenced various individuals of the time. And I think there were some photographs in the book. You know, it's a used paperback. And I became very intrigued by it and read the book. And at one point, I thought about taking titles from that book to use on my, you know, my early photographs. And unfortunately, I've donated my journals, which I kept for many, many years, I think up until the time our son was born. So I can't go back and verify this, but I remember at one point looking at my photographs and thinking, they're not really ready for these titles. 
And so I just kept working. And because I started looking at a lot of World War II documentary photography, you know, Gary and I were sort of looking at similar things. And working in a large open studio, everybody sort of sees everybody else's work. And Gary and I had become friends. And um, after we graduated, his publisher, um, Jim Andrews and John McMeal, Gary and I had traded some work and they saw my photographs and they, some, they were familiar with Gary's work on his thesis. They very nicely and naively suggested that the two of us do a book together. And I think we were probably 24, maybe 23, probably 24 at the time. And our reaction was as typical of the 70s, something to the effect of cool. <laughs> and I remember we got this contract and I think we got an advance for the two of us of $1,500. And I remember when Gary gave me my check and he said, just remember, if you cash this check, we really have to make this book. So, you know, we started on this journey and we really didn't know what we were going to focus on and how we were going to proceed. We ended up having this sort of ritual where we were both living in New Haven. I was teaching at a number of schools in the area. And Gary was working on Doonesbury, which had become so seminal in the culture that he, during that period, received a Pulitzer Prize for political cartooning, and Doonesbury was huge. So It started he, at he, Yale, right? It started in the yeah, Yale newspaper? Right. As an undergrad, uh, doing the, the strip. Wow. I don't, I don't think it was called Doonesbury at the time, but it was, ran in the Yale Daily. So... Gary and I would meet at the Yale gym and play squash. I think he also made us run on the track. We would then go to the International House of Pancakes and have dinner. And every single time, you know, we'd walk out to the parking lot and Gary would say, I think I ate too much. Now, <laughs> needless to say, we always had the exact same things. I had the silver dollar pancakes, hash browns and bacon. And I forget what Gary had, but it was a very substantial meal. And then our final event of the evening was to find some World War II movie that was playing in the local area and go watch that. And we'd end the evening by Gary saying, so let's talk about this Let's next week or something. <laughs> so it took a while to sort of evolve into, you know, it really was... I think because of the book I was reading, Hitler Moves East, we've decided to focus on the Eastern Front, which was very fortuitous because at the time, the Eastern Front in World War II, while people were aware of it, it really wasn't that well known. I remember after the book came out, I was at the big book fair that was that year held in San Francisco and someone asking me, well, why didn't we focus on D-Day or the war in the Pacific? And I said, because everybody has visual memory of that from movies and Life magazine and documentary photographs. If you said at that point, tank battle near Smolensk, 
I mean, people might have heard of Smolensk, but they had no preconceived image in their mind. So right. we were really working with a kind of a blank canvas. And interestingly, during the period we were working on the book, a BBC documentary series came out that was narrated by Burt Lancaster, and it was called The Unknown War, and it was about the Eastern Front. And there'd been some cooperation from the Russians and slightly opening their archives, which had been closed. You started to get more and more imagery from that period of the conflict. And as I say, I think it was very beneficial to our creativity in that we could sort of imagine these scenes and we weren't having people say, well, that's not like what I saw in The Longest Day or Sands of Iwo Jima. So it, it worked out very well. So um, you were actually constructing these mise-en-scene, right, David? And creating interesting explosions and things. And was Gary assisting you at the time in the studio? I mean, how did that collaboration work in terms of? Mostly in my apartment in New Haven, I had like an, I think it was an eight foot long table on soft horses. Mm -hmm. And then I had a smaller table. The smaller table, I sort of created a city. The larger table I divided kind of into three sections. The first section was the Russian steppes. And it took me a while to figure out how to get the wheat field look. I tried the bristles from paintbrushes. I tried a number of different things. Nothing really worked. And one day I was walking through the Caldor store, which was a large... It's sort of a Sears-like type store that I think was East Coast, you know, Massachusetts, Connecticut, maybe New Jersey. And to get to the parking lot, you had to walk through the gardening section. As I'm walking through, I see something called grass filler seed and potting soil. And I thought, what the hell? I'll give it a shot. So I <laughs> created this sort of mound of dirt with the potting soil and put in the grass filler seeds, which I watered with a large Coke bottle that I poked holes in the cap. And all my friends thought I was a little crazy, but lo and behold, the grass started growing. And in fact, it grew so well that I had to cut it with a pair of scissors so it didn't turn from wheat field into jungle. <laughs> But it photographed, you know, because I was growing it inside, it was very light in color, photographed perfectly like a wheat field, sort of white shafts of wheat. So that worked out. Then next to that, I used the rest of the soil to create a lake bed using a garbage bag as the base and surrounding it with soil and putting water in. You had used this amazing, in this series and, and many others, but we'll start with this, you use this really amazing sort of shallow depth of field. Yes. And, and yeah. it created this blurriness and this movement. I'm just, was this a technique that you had in mind or was this a, an, a something that you developed as you were doing this series? How did this come about and what were you looking to convey through it? Well, it initially came about when I first started photographing the toy soldiers and even the figures that I had gotten from the department store. When you extended the lens on the camera, and one of the great things about 
the Rolly camera as opposed to say the Hasselblad, all of these things were built in. It had a built-in bellows. You could flip the lens around to make it even more macro, which is not something I really did a lot, but just extending the camera and focusing on these figures, you automatically had a very narrow depth of field. And what I came to see is that by having that narrow depth of field, you created this almost a sense of motion in the figures because they were out of focus. And that was something that I kept refining and essentially am still refining to this day. And it certainly helped me visualize the scenes. And as I discovered that there were some larger scale figures, they were, I believe they were 135th scale plastic figures that came in a box where all the, like the body parts were separate, the legs, the arms, the heads. And while you could make the figures like the images that were on the box, you also had the flexibility of maybe creating something a little different and the soldier could be running and holding a different weapon or you could create different postures. And I would say probably 70% of the images in Hitler Moves East were done utilizing these larger figures. They also had a wonderful advantage in that you had to paint them. Now, I'm jumping back a little bit. At one point, I found a small bag of like four or five painted 172nd scale figures. They were one of the few Russians I was able to find. They were wearing their winter coats and sort of charging. And Gary saw those and he goes, you know, you should really paint all the figures. Now, these figures were so small that painting them, you were almost using a brush with just a few bristles on it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how I did it, but I was actually able to paint a number of them in four-color camouflage. I still have them only because I'm amazed that at the dexterity I must have had to pretend I had in order to accomplish this. <laughs> I also attribute my very poor eyesight to the fact that Gary made me do this. I didn't do a whole <laughs> lot of them, but when I came across the larger ones, I learned from some model makers, you paint them on the sprues. So before you assemble them, and because they're all held in place and you have a lot more access, and then you glue them together. And if there's any little spots you need to touch up, you do it at that point. So it created two things, much more well-painted figures and much more animated figures. The plastic figures, there were maybe, I don't know, six or eight different poses. There was one in particular of a machine gunner running with his box of ammunition. And he was probably the most animated of the smaller figures. And he appeared in so many photographs that Gary titled him German soldier with lunchbox. <laughs> I know um, which one you're talking about. Yes. And because he was a great figure and he appeared everywhere. Using the larger figures gave me a much greater range of possibilities. And to belatedly answer your question about Gary's participation, 
he came over to my apartment one day and we were armed at that time with, I think, two family-sized bottles of Coca-Cola, a box of Hostess powdered donuts, some other candy. I mean, you know, it would be like a, a kid's fantasy of what you were eating. I, I think we may have also had Twinkies as well. So there was a lot of sugar intake. And I remember I had set up the soldiers on the hill and New Haven was very well known for all the theater that took place there. I think part is a byproduct of the Yale Drama School, but you always heard in movies and things, well, opening and closing in New Haven. So there were a lot of theaters, many of them associated with Yale, but also some other independent theaters. So I went to one of the theater supply shops and got some explosion powder. And we did a little setup and I sprinkled some of this behind the soldiers and we lit it, I think, with a cotton ball that we set on fire. And there was like this sort of poof sound. And, and Gary said, here, give me that. And he took the container with the uh, powder in it. And the analogy I used is he was sprinkling it the way a child at a bowling alley would sprinkle salt on his French fries at the counter. I mean, it was a massive amount. So we lit the cotton ball, throw it on the powder, and there's this boom like a shotgun going off in a closet. The cotton ball flew across the room and hit the window. What, what uh, did your neighbors think while all this was happening? Well, fortunately, it was during the day. Okay. And I don't think anybody else was around. Yeah. Um, I will point out that when my lease was up, despite all the burned plastic that had risen to the ceiling and then fell onto the carpeting and whatever else was there, I think my landlord was so happy to see me leave. <laughs> he gave me my full deposit. It was just like, here's your check. Never come back. Yeah. I mean, he didn't sort of say that, but he just... I'm sure once he looked at the apartment, it's like, I, I just, this guy has to get so out the, of here. The cotton ball hit the window and then what happened? Was there? Well, a <laughs> um, it was funny because I didn't, until I actually processed the black and white film and made the prints, it was really hard to tell what I had. Mm -hmm. And we did a couple of shots, not too many, but maybe two or three. Oh, and it was Gary's idea. And again, his very brilliant idea, he took a pin and stuck it in one of the soldiers and then stuck it into the ground, which is how we created that illusion of the soldier flying in the air, which oh. is so iconic to that image and so perfect. And when I made some prints, I immediately saw that this was just such an incredible image one of the other images we did that day was I turned the lake into a snowfield and we set up a German machine gun position. And Gary was off to the side with a can of dust off the air spray and sort of blowing the gold medal flower across the scene. And the gold medal flower was so perfect because it was just the right texture that when it adhered to the soldiers, it really looked like snow. And at the end of the day, Gary said, 
you know, if I knew you were having this much fun, I would have come over more often. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he also had one suggestion that I declined, which was on the table that the city was on. He said, why don't we burn the whole city down? <laughs> and I was like, there are a lot of plastic buildings. I thought, oh, that's maybe not the best idea. But he did have another idea. He took some black string and I had a very small plastic German plane and he made two little loops on the plane so that it would glide down this string. And actually it was more like thread. I mean, it was very, very, very thin. And his idea was, okay, I'm gonna light the plane on fire. And then I would photograph it as it slid down the string which conceptually sounded great. Unfortunately, neither of us really had much experience in science and engineering. <laughs> and about a quarter of the way down this string, the string caught on fire and the plane went straight down. However, I was able to get a picture and it's in the book. Uh, it's of this sort of plane on fire going right. down. So it wasn't a totally lost cause, but the plane basically went in flames straight onto the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> What's so interesting is you really are playing with scale in your photographs as well. And I mean, what you see as you create these scenes of toys that you've put into place and then photograph them is so much different than what the viewer sees in the final product. And yeah, um, yeah. yeah. it's very, very true. And it's something that I've continued to use throughout my career. Sometimes you, know, you put something in the background that's out of scale, but it photographs perfectly. And if you could see sort of a raw picture of one of my setups, I think you would see that not infrequently, that there's something spatially incorrect, mm -hmm. but it works in the photograph because of the way it fades in the background or comes forward from the background. And so that happens all the time. You know, the, I'll use buildings together that are of totally different scales, but it'll work. Something in the foreground, something in the background, and you can create an illusion of a street or uh, a series of buildings. I feel like even at this late stage in my career, I'm discovering new things. And playing around with the depth of field even more. I recently did a photograph uh, for my ongoing Vietnam series mm -hmm. where having just watched Platoon, the scene where Willem Dafoe and the other character are running towards each other in the jungle. And I decided to focus on a leaf in front of one of the figures running. And it created this incredible image where the figure is totally soft and the leaf is in focus, but it really, in my view, replicated what I was trying to get from that scene and put into a photograph. And there was part of me that thought, hey, there's a lot of things I could reshoot using this technique. <laughs> And it was just really from sort of playing with the focus and trying a number of things. And because I'm now shooting digitally, as I have for the last 15 years, 
I can immediately see the image on the monitor. So the interaction is instantaneous as opposed to when I was shooting black and white film and then I'd have to process it and make the prints. So the digital images allow me to sort of respond immediately to what I'm doing and fine tune it in a way that really wasn't possible before. Mm-hmm. Right. The theme of four has continued to run through your work, as you say, throughout the years. And you've done the IED series, and now you've been working on the Vietnam War. There's a real paradox between the innocence of toys and war. And I'm just curious, what is it that compels you about war? And what ideas are you exploring through these works from Hitler movies onward? You know, it's interesting. I think part of my fascination is from my early reading of historical books like Bruce Catton's series on the Civil War. I think war can be very engaging and so much about the period in which it takes place, whether it's medieval conflicts, whether it's more contemporary conflicts. And from a toy perspective, if you see a catalog for a toy auction, say at Christie's or Sotheby's, Mm -hmm. a lot of the toys are, even the Western figures are often about conflict and combat between cowboys and Indians. And there's a monumental sense of conflict. And the figures are so articulated because they're charging forward or falling backwards because they've been shot. I probably attribute a lot of that just to my childhood, playing with toy soldiers from a young age and playing in the grass in the backyard and setting them up and knocking them over. I don't think there's any, it wasn't like I set out to do this. I mean, some of my series, like say Modern Romance, were totally influenced by the paintings of Edward Hopper, the whole film noir genre. The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, I think it was maybe the early 80s, did this exhibition of Hopper. And in conjunction with that, they did a film series of films that were in their set design influenced by Hopper. The opening diner scene from The Killers. And I really grew to appreciate and love film noir. And it was interesting as I started watching more of them, I realized that I'd seen some when I was quite young, because they'd be on the one independent channel in the Bay Area during the day, maybe while I was eating my grilled cheese sandwich and tomato soup, I'd see part of the asphalt jungle. And it was only when I saw the whole feature that I went, oh, I remember this film. I remember seeing that. But I, when I first got to New York and there were so many revival theaters, I went to any film noir that was playing in Manhattan. And there were, at the time, a lot of them. And I would go with my little sketch pad and make sort of little notes. And in that case, I was using these, again, quite small figures, but they had all been pre-painted. And I would create little rooms out of mat board and cut out windows and put in model windows. And 
I developed a type of lighting using these small lights that mechanics would use when they're working on cars, because at the time, nobody made really small lights for studio photography. And I literally would tape them to shoeboxes and push them up against the window, or they were flexible so I could bend them into the scene. So it's interesting because I think of that series specifically, and I think of, it's funny, you're saying Hopper and Film Noir, and I kind of think of Douglas Sirk when I think of your series, mm-hmm. because I think in a weird way, Douglas Sirk brought the Hopper and the Film Noir together. There was always this sort of solitary figure that was sort of, there was a sentimentality to it, but there was also this outsider figure. And I feel that in your work too. Are you conscious of those ideas of American alienation? Was that running through your mind at all? I don't think I was that sophisticated. Oh, sorry. I mean, it was certainly <laughs> the characters, the great characters in those movies, even the, I shouldn't say even, especially in some of the B film noirs, were so much about and some of the actors. But yeah, there was a rawness and a sense of the bad that you do always catches up with you. I, I can't remember which movie it was, but there was a final scene where somebody's shot in the street and they're lying down and it's raining and it sort of pans to where the drain is. And then it pans up and there's a sign that says, dead end. <laughs> uh, your deeds were always somehow punished at the end in one way or another. And there was no softening of that. People in these getting noir stabbed. films, you mean? Yeah, people mm-hmm. getting stabbed in a railway car and it going dark. And to this day, I mean, I still love those films. Mm-hmm. But that was uh, the darkness, the loneliness. I remember one of my favorite modern romance images is of a woman holding her pocketbook, kind of looking down, and she's standing in front of a doorway. And one of the things I did, because these figures were so small, and I was photographing with an SX-70 camera, Mm -hmm. again, which I loved, and again, which gave me sort of an instant image. The problem was the film comes out the front of the camera, and I was so close to the scenes, Polaroid made this little clip-on close-up lens that you could allow you to get even closer. So as soon as I heard the mechanism of the camera start, I had to tilt the tripod back so that the film coming out wouldn't knock over my scene. (laughs) And I kept thinking, there's got to be a better way. And I, I guess I was reading the New York Times and there were these, in the early 70s, video cameras were just starting to become smaller and being looked at as more, you know, something that a family could have and use. And I remember going to this camera store and I brought one of my tiny dioramas that was even smaller than the 178 scale. And I set it up and I worked with this guy, just sort of looking how things would look through a video camera. And I probably spent an hour with him and he was so helpful. At the end, I apologized. I said, you know, I'm really sorry. Uh, I've taken up so much of your time. He said, look, most people come in, they stick their baby on the floor, and they want to try out the camera photographing the baby. What you're doing is at least interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I got a video camera, and what I did was I had a long cord, and I hooked it up to my television screen. And I was photographing. I had the 
tripod with the SX-70 camera in front of the television. And I was just photographing sort of the inner square, so I wasn't getting any curvature. But the result was, and because the exposure was so slow, you didn't get those angled lines that you sometimes get when you photograph a TV screen. But I did get this pixelation, which was wonderful because it made it look like a film still. And it abstracted it even more and in some ways made it more realistic, almost like it was a surveillance camera. And I wish I had been recording with the video camera and just instead of just keeping it on sort of focusing mode. But that part of the series was all done with this jerry-rigged setup. And I'm trying to think of other series that were not so war-related. Well, I wanted to maybe talk about your Wild West series. You were a post-war baby of 1949, born into Truman's America, which was just recovering from the war, World War II. And your parents had just moved from New York to Northern California, Menlo Park. So during this time and history, how did the Great West play a part in your early sensibilities and then later in your Wild West series? Well, you know, it's interesting. I remember doing a little research on this well after the fact, but early television was so predominantly Western in its theme. I think I read somewhere that 60% of the programs were Western. And there were a lot of them that were on Saturdays that were directed at kids like Wild Bill Hickok that was sponsored by Sugar Pop Cereal. And the Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, Westerns. And so it was so much a part of growing up, so much so that every kid that I knew had a cap gun and a holster set running around uh, shooting at each other. So it really kind of encapsulated the culture at that time. And just as a side note, Richard Prince and I I think we're born four or five months apart in 1949. Our backgrounds couldn't have been more different. Yet Richard and I have focused on a lot of similar themes. The Westerns being one, the porn magazines that were in the smoke shop way in the corner that you had to sneak to take a peek at. And I've always felt that he and I were part of what I call the first television generation, Mm -hmm. where television became omnipresent in people's homes. And that's one of the reasons why we've dealt differently, but with so many of the same subjects. And someday, a young curator who's unafraid will do a show of our work together and represent that. That would be an uh, incredible show. Yeah, it it would be. It's it. It would be so. uh, I don't want to say politically incorrect, but I think they'd have a hard time pulling it off. That that (laughs) in in the in the in the present context, right? Um, But yeah, you know, you're always influenced by the culture you're growing up in, and that had a a really big big impact. That and the fact that I guess one of my relatively early birthdays. My parents got me these beautiful cowboy and Indian figures from Germany that were all hand painted. And I still have a few. And 
thanks to uh, eBay, I've been able to collect more that I, I did photograph. But I mean, that had a big impact because they mm -hmm. were so beautifully done. But they were also painted in a way that was kind of a colorful caricature. The cowboys would have like these blue jackets and polka dot shirts, and they were really an extension of the characters from a series of Western books by the German author Karl May, or Karl May, I guess, happened to be Adolf Hitler's favorite author. And Karl wrote all these books and he had these consistent characters. There was old Shatterhand and all the characters had names. And the figures that I got were sort of drawn from those books and those stories. What's funny, and you said about that series that it's considered for you the West that never was, but always will be. Why is the mythology of the West so important to you and so important to our American culture to this day? Well, I think part of it is the mythology of it. And one of the recent examples of that is the story of the Battle of the Alamo. There was a book published, I think a year or so ago, sort of bringing into question the way the Alamo was portrayed first by Walt Disney and then by John Wayne, bore no resemblance to the true history of it. But the state of Texas passed a law recently that essentially you could only teach, they didn't call it the myth, but you could only teach that version of the Battle of the Alamo and completely ignore the fact that what the Texas quote, revolution was about was slavery. Hmm. Texas wanted it and it was against the law in Mexico. And the Texans wanted to sort of rival their Southern neighbors in the wealth that was being generated by cotton. And you don't hear any of that in any of these films. You don't hear about some of the quote icons of Texas were down there in an effort to gobble up large amounts of land and become land barons. The stories, in, certainly in the films that you know, I watched as a, a child about the Battle of the Little Bighorn, or the Indians were always portrayed as the enemy or the villains. And even in some films where directors tried to paint a more compassionate and more sensitive portrayal of the West. You know, the iconography was still very much the same. And when I was doing the Wild West series and shooting the Polaroids, I think because of my liberal arts background and my desire to always do research, I read not just a lot of history, but uh, as many somewhat contemporary accounts of that period as I could. And totally the whole idea of two cowboys meeting in the street, you know, to shoot it out. Most gunfights, it turned out, for obviously safety reasons, you shot whoever it was from an alleyway or in the back, because even a slight wound could be fatal. You'd be knocked unconscious, your, your chances of living, you know, in the movies and the television shows, 
the characters always say, oh, it just winged me, you know, I'll be okay. And, you know, pull the <laughs> bullet out. You're most likely you're going to die either from the shock of the bullet or from the infection. So it created this whole, quote, noble concept. And I remember one of my favorite TV shows was Wagon Train. And constantly there'd be a character who sacrifices themselves for the good of the wagon train and he or she dies, but everybody is saved. And it reminds me a little of Oliver Stone's beginning of Born on the Fourth of July, where these young boys are playing war in the backyard. And then it sort of morphs into this scene where they're landing on the beach in Vietnam. That this sort of idea of self-sacrifice for the greater good is kind of what the military is proposing in many ways. Serve your country and sacrificing for democracy and freedom, and which isn't always the case. It's more like an ad campaign in some ways, sort of sociological mm-hmm. idea that's in a lot of these early films and early Westerns. And one of the things that made the television show Gunsmoke so unique is they had a bit of a noir aspect where the good guys could die. And that was just part of the way the story played out. And it wasn't always good and bad, good and evil. Sometimes justice wasn't done. And life had to go on. Mm-hmm. Right. In 1986, Polaroid had invited you to use the 20 by 24 inch camera at their studio in New York. And you took this opportunity to use it for the Wild West series. What did you discover about the new medium of the large format Polaroid? And how did that transform your work on behalf of the Western series and perhaps others? Well, you know, it's funny. I was given an artist day at the Polaroid studio which meant you got like 30 exposures and you weren't charged any studio rental fee. John Reuter, who ran the studio forever and still does work with the camera up in Massachusetts, I got a call from John the day before I was supposed to go in saying, well, they hadn't gotten their shipment of film from Polaroid. They were only like seven or eight exposures, but I was welcome to come in and just sort of play around with it. Over my 20 years of using the camera, I realized that John calling and saying the film hasn't come in was not an unusual call to receive. So I went in and I brought some of my cowboy figures, I think some of the German ones and ones that I'd photographed with the SX-70, and I set them up. And I remember the first print we did, it looked like The horses were from a merry-go-round at some amusement park. I mean, everything seemed off. I think the first six or seven that I shot that day were just abysmal. I mean, they just had no appeal to me whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So when I came back, when they had the full quota of film, I went with very low expectations. Basically, okay, I can put on my resume that I received an artist grant from Polaroid and I'll move on with my life. So we set up the camera and John put in some different 
filters and suddenly the pictures were beautiful. The color was just radiating from the Polaroid. And because it's a contact print, there's no enlargement. The color is so incredibly rich. I mean, just unbelievably rich. And that sort of brought me into the Polaroid world. And the size of the print, I was used to in photography making a 16 by 20 print was a large print. Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly I had these 20 by 24 color prints that were beautiful and really magnetic. And it was a very appealing and seductive format. And, you know, I kept using it. And not long thereafter, I was asked if I wanted to do a show at the Clarence Kennedy Gallery, which was the gallery Polaroid had up in Cambridge. And I said, that would be great. And a little while later, I got a call from one of the people in charge asking me if I would be willing to move the date forward for the show. And I said, oh, Connie, I was really hoping to spend more time at the, you know, the Polaroid studio here in New York. And Connie was a very direct person. She said, well, how many days would you like? And I thought for a minute, I said, 10. And she said, great, you've got 10 days, which was a lot of time. When and has a show ever been moved up? That's crazy. I know that never happens in the art world. <laughs> and the other thing is, if you went over your allotment of 30, I think it was only like $20 a print or an exposure, which was a fraction of what it would cost you to make a color print that size. So I would often shoot 70, sometimes 80 prints at a session. Over time, my friend William Wegman and I had a little competition as to who could shoot the most Polaroids in one day. And for years, Bill held the record, which was like 90-something. Wow. And I remember, I think I was doing the Desire series, but in one day I shot like 112. <laughs> and I called Bill up at while well, I was at the studio and I said, Bill, just want you to know I've obliterated your record. And Bill is a big Boston Red Sox fan. Uh, he's from the Boston area, he's from Massachusetts. And he said, well, that there should be an asterisk because his subjects actually move and mine are stationary. So if I want to do five prints of sort of the same setup, I can just make five prints. And I said, you're absolutely right. Point well taken. <laughs> but also the studio, there weren't that many photographers using the camera as much as say Bill and I, Timothy Greenfield Sanders used it for portrait work. There are a few other people, but it was almost like a club in a way. In fact, I remember one point when Polaroid film wasn't coming in, Bill suggested to John Reuter that they just stop photographing at the studio and we turn it into a clubhouse where we would meet and talk and then go around the corners to uh, Jerry's, which was this great restaurant in Soho that was favored by a lot of artists, uh, Chuck Close and others, and just go have lunch there. And this would be our little playpen. But it 
Yeah, I became really enthralled with the color and the power of the Polaroid camera and it became my principal camera for mm -hmm. 20 years. At what point did you switch to digital? I'm curious. It was in, I believe it was 2007. Okay. Um, at, at that point, Polaroid had been sold a number of times. There have been bankruptcies and the flow of film was essentially had gone to, I don't want to say zero, there was still some film, but the big problem was getting the developer pods. And finally, some people in Europe called the Impossible Project stepped in to try and replicate the film and uh, the developer. It never really worked out. I mean, I think you can still use the 20 by 24 camera, but not in the way that Bill and I were using it back what? in the day. I just want to switch gears and talk about the Blackface series. Mm -hmm. That wasn't digital, right? That was no, also- No, that was Polaroid. Yeah, there was, yeah, that was all 2024 Polaroid. And okay. I, I yeah, think- Beautiful. It, yeah. Its impact in part came from the fact that I was using a black velvet for the background, which I'd used for both the Desire series and the Triple X series. And it allowed the objects to emanate from the blackness of the background and the blackness in the Polaroid itself. And I think that really added to their kind of confrontational directness. Right. Um, I think a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with that series. Would you be able to just tell us about those figures and, and what your aim was for the series? Well, I'm afraid I have to preface it with yet another rambling story. I was down in Washington, D.C., and the artist William Christenberry and I were being interviewed for this photography magazine called Sight from the Friends of Photography in San Francisco. And I was being interviewed about my Mein Kampf series, and Bill had created these sort of clan figures that he photographed. Bill was originally from Alabama and was sort of a protege of Walker Evans. And Walker was one of my teachers when I was at Yale. Right. And so we're doing this interview and the poor interviewer, because Bill is a great storyteller, much like Walker. And I feel I've learned from two masters of storytelling so I can ramble on with the best of them. <laughs> so... Mary Foresta kept trying to get us back to the theme of Mein Kampf and Bill's work with the clan imagery. And at some point during our conversation, we started talking about the film Birth of a Nation. And we had dinner, we were, did the interview in Bill's studio, and, which was adjacent to his home in D.C. And we had dinner at his home, which consisted of Chinese takeout, and some extremely good bourbon. And during dinner, I kept thinking, you know, I think I could do Birth of a Nation. I you know, have these figures. I've seen these Confederate officers dancing with women in hoop skirts. I was building in my mind what I would need to put together. And Bill went up to his attic and brought down the book, The Klansman, on which Birth of a Nation was based. And I went back to New York and fortuitously, like a week or so later, there was this big uh, collectible show in Atlantic City, which was held 
I think twice a year and people came from not only all over the country, but from, you know, Europe. I was at this massive antique show. Mm -hmm. And while I had sort of a passing 50s knowledge of black memorabilia, the Aunt Jemima cookie jars, the Aunt Jemima and Uncle Moe's salt and pepper shakers, the kind of things that you might see at a, uh, a fried chicken restaurant in the 50s and early 60s. So I had an awareness of these objects, but I had no idea of the depth and the scope of them. When I went to this show, I found lots of fascinating figures that had really nothing to do with the theme of birth of a nation, but I found very compelling and interesting. And I came back to New York with four or five grocery bags filled with things. And I remember next time I went to the Polaroid studio, I brought a couple of these figures with me. And I'm not sure what series I had been photographing at the time, but I decided to use the black velvet that I'd used before to sort of physically isolate the figures so there was no distracting background. They would just emanate from the print. And I can't remember specifically which object it was, but the photograph just literally knocked me over. It was so powerful. Mm -hmm. And my immediate reaction was, forget about birth of a nation. I want to photograph these objects. But the blackface series became very compelling. And an interesting thing happened. The Institute of Contemporary Art at the University of Pennsylvania, the curator there, she said, oh, you know, I'd love to do a show of your work. And she was thinking about a retrospective, but I had already committed to and was pretty far along in doing a retrospective at the International Center of Photography. And I said to her, you know, I've just started this new series. I'm really excited about it. And she came over and I showed her some of the prints. She thought it was great. She had me come down to Philadelphia to meet the director and everything was fine. The only thing that I should have thought about more carefully was they wanted to do the show in less than a year. And that just doesn't happen at a major museum. Like something must have happened. A railroad car with their current, their plans had gone over a cliff or something. But I was so fixated on the work and so excited about it that I said, that's great. And I basically focused all of my energy on creating this new series for an exhibition. At a certain point, the curator came to New York with one of the board members. And initially they were going to have the head of the African-American studies program write for the catalog for the exhibition. We're having our conversation and she had, the curator told me that the board was a little uneasy about doing the exhibition. They were concerned about how the 
community was going to react. And what I said was, look, this is one of the great advantages of having this show at a university. We can do symposiums, we can do panels. This can be sort of the starting point for a lot of discussion. And I remember the next day I spoke to the curator. I asked her how the trip back to Philadelphia was. And she said the board member was still very concerned how the Black community was going to respond. And my immediate reaction was, well, let's talk to them. Let's ask them. Now, over the course of exhibiting this work, I've had that same question come up, but it's always been one that was dealt with. I went back to work on the, the series and was working very, very intensely. And I came home on a, a Friday night from the Polaroid studio and picked up my mail. And there was a letter from the museum and I opened it up and it simply stated, the board has decided not to support the exhibition. And it was really like two sentences. Mm -hmm. And I had no way of contacting the curator until Monday. So I spent the whole weekend just thinking, not only I had spent a tremendous amount of time, but I was paying for the Polaroid time. I was acquiring all these objects. I'd really made a, a very significant investment. Ironically, the curator had sent me via fax a letter that they had written to the Whitney Museum in an effort to get the Whitney to partner with them. And in the letter, they were extolling how important and significant this work was. And I thought about it a lot and I decided I was just going to go ahead and continue the series. And a story came out in the Village Voice about the show being canceled, as well as a one-column piece in The New Yorker that included a photograph, not from the series, but of one of my Western pieces. And the director of the museum wrote a letter to The New Yorker stating that the reason they canceled the show was that my earlier work had much more of a sense of place around the photograph so that in the Western photographs, there was a background. And my immediate thought was, so, okay, if I got a paddle wheel boat, put it in the background, had Stephen F. Foster music playing and photograph these objects, that would meet your criteria. <laughs> and after the article came out, I was at an opening at the Whitney and David Ross came over to me and put his hand on my shoulder and he said, you know, this would never have happened at the Whitney. Mm. <laughs> unfortunately, it's one of those times where my chutzpah failed me and I should have turned to him and said, well, you know, David, the work's all done. Just give me a day and I'll get it framed. ICP, though, in, in 97, I believe, did embrace and show the work. Well, I, I wouldn't say embrace. They went through some soul searching and they did talk to the staff, particularly the people working in the galleries, many of whom were African-American, to get their feelings. And so they were included and they were included in the book that we published. But this is like 1996. And this was a time when the culture wars were raging in the U.S. And you were talking about racial stereotypes and memorabilia that had been 
historically collectibles, I mean, these were caricatures. How much did they date back? Well, some of them were from the late 1800s. I think the other factor was being a white artist. What was my, as some people might say, my right to deal with the subject? Mm -hmm. In 1998, I think it was, 98 or 99, Henry Louis Gates had a symposium at Harvard dealing with art and racism, specifically Black racism. And I was invited. I was one of, I think, three white artists. And I remember being on a panel. I was on two panels, one of which uh, seated just to my right was Julian Bond. And I felt like, oh, my God, here is somebody, you know, one of the great icons of the civil rights movement. And I'm sitting next to him and we're discussing this subject. And he was very much a proponent that it was important to deal with these objects, that he wanted his children and his grandchildren to know them and understand them. And when it was time for me to do my presentation to this overwhelmingly African-American audience of scholars and artists, I said, my vantage point was that these objects were commercial objects starting in the 1800s and they were made for a white audience they wouldn't have existed if people weren't buying them now the earliest examples were based on the characters from uncle tom's cabin which was the most popular book in europe for a number of years after it was published I'd like to say it was kind of the Harry Potter of its day. It was selling in huge numbers. So that some of the European companies, one of which made what they call flat figures, which are flat tin that are embossed in such a way that they have a certain sense of dimensionality to them. Others like the porcelain manufacturers in England were making Uncle Tom's cabin figures in what we would today consider derogatory, but at the time, I think we're really trying to honor the subjects and ennoble them through producing these objects. Now, over time, and again, I did a lot of reading while I continued this series for a number of years, and you could see the tone of the objects changing particularly after the Northern migration, they became very demeaning and extremely derogatory. What I'm saying is they didn't start out that way. They really reflected some of the changes in the society, which became more overt in its racism and less about recreating this myth of the antebellum South but you could sense and see the transition in the, the figures, you know, as I said, over time. And I made the analogy that, and I'm not trying to compare the two events, but at the end of World War II in Europe, Dwight Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander, required German citizens who lived near the concentration camps to tour them and graphically see what had transpired. 
And to me, and I don't think I was thinking this far ahead when I was actually doing the work, but at the end, I felt like my photographs were really trying to confront a white audience and say, you're responsible for this. We are responsible for this. If people hadn't been buying these, they would have stopped producing them. And the tone of these objects was clearly geared to what people were feeling about these different time periods. And I felt that that was a very important perspective. And when people said, what gives you the right to use these objects, my response was, well, they were really made for me. They were made for white people. And white people need to accept responsibility for playing such a role in their creation. Now, that's a conversation that you could have had in the 90s. Mm-hmm. I seriously doubt that if I were in front of an audience today at, say, a university, that I'd be able to even get this far in a conversation. Right. I mean, I was going um, to say it, it really, with cancel culture today, it brings up the question of, should we acknowledge and look at our history of racism and violence and fascism in the case of your Mind Kampf series through art in order mm-hmm. to create a public discourse and dialogue about it? Or should we erase it and pretend it didn't exist? Well, you know, one of the things about the Blackface series, and this may sound sort of counterintuitive, but I've had this discussion with a number of curators. I feel that of all my bodies of work, the Blackface series is perhaps the most subtle. Mm -hmm. And I say that because initially some people would look at it and say, well, you're just photographing the objects. But if you saw the objects, on a few occasions, objects have been displayed. Like when I did a show at the first African-American library in the United States was in Alexandria, Virginia. And it's now become like a community center and sort of a center for discourse on these topics. I did an exhibition there and they had a number of figures from their collection that they displayed. The audience was almost entirely African-American and probably the best audience that I've ever had for talking about this work and discussing this work. And I remember talking to them about what had happened at the ICA and there were a number of older black women in the, the front row and they were all nodding their heads like, mm-hmm, yes, we completely understand what was happening there. They were very, very receptive to the work and to the dialogue around the work which given the ICA's reaction is so ironic because I know that if they went to the community in Philadelphia and I was able to speak with them and speak to a number of the leaders involved in that community, that there would not have been a problem. But it was that imagined problem that they as white people had about what they assumed the reaction of the Black community was going to be. But getting back to the subtlety, when you look at the photographs, 
because they're emanating from this very, very dark space and the objects are sort of isolated in the Polaroid, they're very powerful. I think it's a series that maybe not in my lifetime, since I just turned 73, but I think it will eventually become a very important series. And when Spike Lee did his film Bamboozled a number of years ago, I said to Spike a number of times that I really owe him a great deal because by including a number of these images in the film, both on some of the scenes and also in the credits, he really brought the attention to that work to a newer, younger audience, which, you know, really revived interest in it. Nowadays, given our current situation, I think it's difficult work for museums to exhibit. I just did a show at the SEPA gallery in Buffalo, and they had some of the blackface work in there. And in their small catalog, they brought in a writer who addressed those, specifically those issues, because that's the kind of conversation that has to be very interactive and nuanced in its understanding. Mm -hmm. Your work has been said to explore how we perceive truth as a culture. And it seems we're now living in a post-truth era where the media and politicians and the culture at large invents our reality. Is this something that you thought about while creating your more recent history series? And can you tell us about the series and the ideas that you're working with? Yeah, I would have to say the history series is not really referencing sort of the changing social attitudes about history and rewriting history. While I was working on the large exhibition at uh, George Eastman that was done in conjunction with the Smithsonian a number of years ago, mm -hmm. Lisa Hostetler, who was the curator at George Eastman, she was over here and we were talking about the exhibition. And I said, Lisa, I really want to show you some of the stuff I'm working on now. And it was kind of the beginning of what became the history exhibition and the, the catalog. And she loved the work. And we, I didn't even have a title for it. And I was showing her a number of things. And she said, you know, I have these two galleries that are totally up to me to program. I'd like to do a small show a year or so before your big retrospective of this new work. And I had printed, I think, one of the pieces quite large. And we ended up doing, I don't know, 10 or 12 large, basically the largest digital prints I could do with my printer here in New York. And what um, were those sizes? I think it's about 60 by 78. Mm -hmm. So they're very good size. And when Lisa and I were talking, she said something about, well, what do you want to call this show or this work? And since I covered a wide range of time periods, I said, why don't we call it history? And the reason I chose history is that it allowed me 
the flexibility to go anywhere I wanted. In the past, if I wanted to do a picture of the Marines at Iwo Jima, I would have created a whole War in the Pacific series and put that in there. With the title history, I could go to any period of time and the images would fit into that context. So it gave me a tremendous amount of freedom. I could have Western images. I could have images of the Crusades, the American Revolution. You know, it gave me a, a tremendous amount of freedom. So we called the show History. And Lisa wanted to do a small catalog. And my very, very good friend and great patron, Donald Rosenfeld, Donald said, I mean, let's not do one of these small cat. Let's do a book. And we ended up doing the history book. And it not only expanded the work, but it was recorded in this very substantial volume. And, uh, you know, there's even like a small section where I did some Lawrence of Arabia photographs. I think they were maybe two or three. It really allowed me to go anywhere I wanted to. And the photographs would fit into that context. There's one work in that series that really stood out for me, Dallas, 1963, from yes. 2014. I'm just wondering, can you tell us about the process of creating that piece and also why that exact moment? Because you could have picked from many, many different moments during that incident, but you chose a very specific moment. I'm curious why. Well, I had come across this figure or this small car, and I'd say the car is maybe three inches long. So it's quite small. And I saw this, I think I saw it on eBay. And it was the car that JFK was in while he was riding in Dallas. And there was a JFK figure, a Jackie figure, the governor and his wife, the driver, and I think a Secret Service person sitting in the front. And I'm always attracted to toys that seem so fascinating in as to why did somebody make this and for years i had it sitting on my shelf and i have a lot of figures and objects like that sitting around and i think it was around the time of the 50th anniversary of the assassination and there was a lot of programs on television they were bringing back the zabruder film and all of these and my studio at that time was still in my loft here in the city. And I decided to try and make a scene of that moment. Initially, I put up some buildings in the background. I think I even had like a paper background of a cityscape, sort of that image that you saw of Dealey Plaza and the buildings. And I shot a number of photographs with my digital camera and Nothing looked good. It just, the background looked really awful. Now, it just so happened that I had a brass hill that I'd used for photographing Custer's Last Stand. So I took out the buildings and I put the grass hill behind it. I think I only actually shot maybe four, four images. But it just was so perfect. I focused it so that you got a hint, one of the front tires, and 
you could make out Jackie's hat. And Jackie's hat visually tells you exactly where you are and what that moment is. And the moment I took that picture, I knew that I had made a great photograph, one that was just, I thought it was the best photograph I might have ever taken. Comparing it to maybe the explosion from Hitler Moves East is, it was so perfect. It became the unquestioned cover photograph for history. One of the large prints is in the collection of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. One is at the Houston Museum of Fine Arts. I think one is at George Eastman. And they've all gone to very significant places. And one here is sitting here in the studio. In fact, when the Houston Museum of Fine Art wanted that piece, they were doing a small show of my work. And the art handlers came to lift it off the wall. And my wife was like, horrified, like, you can't take that picture out of our home. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to make another print going to an important museum show. But yeah, it was just one of those sort of perfect moments. That's personally my favorite of all your work. I just, I think it is such a powerful piece and it's just so perfect. Well, it, you know, it's interesting when people come over, they almost always have that same sort of reaction, but it, it's really the pink of Jackie's hat mm. is sort of the entry point. I mean, it just, if you actually saw the figures, they're, you know, small figures, they're not at all well-defined. If you saw a close-up, they'd look horrible. But with that narrow focus, just enough so you can make out her hat, it fills in all the information you need for the other figures. And that grassy hill just looked so perfect. I actually put a photographer, it's very hard to make him out, but he's that same scale, but he's sort of next to the car in the background. But yeah, it was just one of those moments where it was so perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really the last photograph that I shot here. We did a remodeling so that our son could not have to live near the washer dryer. I moved my studio out to this art complex in Jersey City, but it was a very good note to end on. So David, what's next? What are you working on and what's next? Well, I've been working probably for the last, intensely for the last four years, but probably longer than that, a series on Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, I look at it as sort of the bookend to Hitler Moves East. I started with Hitler Moves East and Hitler Moves East led me to this style of work that I do. And I feel like I'm using all the skills that I've acquired over these almost 50 years in photographing the Vietnam series, which has changed dramatically over the years. I'm using a combination of dioramas that I'm making scenes. I just acquired this beautiful diorama from a company in Spain that I've done a lot of work with of a helicopter suspended in air with soldiers coming out 
both sides. And we've already started kind of laying out the groundwork for the book of this work. And I'm really excited about it. I mean, the work is so powerful. The subject is so powerful. And ironically, whereas in Hitler Moves East, I purposely worked on something that wasn't that well photographed or that well known. Here with Vietnam, I'm kind of using that to my advantage in some ways. I'm drawing a lot from films, particularly the film Platoon and imagery that people are more aware of and more familiar with, but transforming it into my style and my media. And in the studio now, I think I have four of the really large pieces from the Vietnam series. And I think the book is going to be really amazing. And we're working on possible museum venues. But that's been the project that has really consumed me for the last four years. And we met with the design, the book designer who did history, who did the War Myth Desire catalog, and another book called War Games. And George is such a master. I, I met George through Gary Trudeau. Mm -hmm. When I was doing the IED series, we did a book. And I remember at the opening here in New York, Gary said to me, he said, the work looks so beautiful. I wish the book could have matched that. And it was one of those cases where the publisher designed it. And it's probably not as bad as I felt at the time, but he introduced me to George and George has been designing for me ever since. So we've, we've been able to produce these amazing books and the war myth desire actually received some very prestigious international museum book publishing award that I was totally unaware of until George called me up and said, this is a really big deal. <laughs> and I said, you know how on children's books, they used to put that kind of gold seal on the cover if it was an award-winning book. Right. I said, is it too late for us to do that with more myth desire? <laughs> um, but I've really benefited from some just amazing publications. Well, they're um, like art objects into yeah. themselves and they're just exquisite. And then the beautiful book of essays that accompanies them and so I'm hoping, Robin, that Donald has given you a copy of the box set. Yes, he oh, has. Good. And good. they're just magnificent. Yeah, it's a treasure. Uh, you know, I felt so honored and grateful when it came out. I liked the, the single volume was also really nice, but the box set mm -hmm. is just like, I used to refer to it to my wife as my tombstone, something <laughs> that she felt was not necessary, but it's <laughs> sure. just... It really captured all the work I've done over the years. Yeah. And I really feel that the Vietnam book will be sort of, I plan to keep working, but I don't envision doing, it's easy for me to say that now, such an extensive series again. Mm -hmm. So I, I see it sort of as a coda to Hitler Moves East, two bookends to a 50 plus year career that I'm still continue to be excited by. 
Oh, fantastic. So at the end of this, we do this thing called the quick draw. Six questions, 60 seconds, one word answers. Okay, Alex, take it away. Okay, David, favorite film? The Searchers by John Ford. What are you reading right now? The New Yorker. What music have you been listening to? Patti Smith. Favorite food? Shake Shack, the original one in Madison Square Park, New York City. Most underrated artist? Caravaggio. I know he's not underrated, but he can't be overrated enough. I love it. That's a great answer. <laughs> Favorite guilty pleasure? Glazed donut holes. Yum. Okay. Thank great. you. This is so great, David. Thank we you. really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, okay. well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Laws Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.